Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. There's nothing worse than a bad ending. A book, a movie, a concert, a sporting event, even a letter starts in a promising way, captures your attention, then takes you on a stimulating journey of both thought and emotion. But it can all fall apart. The experience can lose its luster. The final impact will be dulled, maybe even lost, if the ending falls short. It's like they always say, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. So then, as we come to the end of the line with the book of James, how does this letter, written by Jesus' half-brother to the Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire and beyond, conclude? We're about to find out, but let me just prepare us in advance. James's closing lines do not provide us with the typical ending that we find in, say, the other letters of the New Testament, the ones penned by the Apostle Paul or Peter or John. James will not offer us any parting words of fond farewell. James will not extend to us a final rousing prayer or a formal blessing or benediction. No, James will finish what he has to say much like he began, much like he's been speaking to us all along, with a word of exhortation delivered with, of course, a sense of urgency. Up until now, James has been forcefully directive in both providing wisdom and practical, hands-on instruction in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. And now, as we'll hear, James, with these last two verses, isn't about to take his foot off the gas. So let's buckle up for a strong finish and make sure we pay close attention to James's last words to us. Here they are from chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. Good morning. Please join me in today's scripture reading from James 5, verse 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. With just two short verses, James concludes with an implied command that simultaneously expresses both an invitation and a challenge about the possibility of wandering away from the truth and the promise of how bringing someone back who strays from the truth is saving that person from death. Let's quickly break it all down so that we make sure that we understand it properly. First, let's recognize the obvious. With his parting words, James is addressing believers, Christians, not non-believers, not non-Christians, but believers, followers of Jesus. He writes to my brothers and sisters, or the actual old school form of address that James uses here is my brethren. James exercises this endearing term, my brethren, for his fellow Christians 15 times in this letter. Three of those times, he also attaches the adjective beloved. That James is talking to professed followers of Jesus is further confirmed by the phrase that follows, if one of you, if one of you should wander from the truth, if one of you from the fellowship, from the brethren. Meaning the wanderer in question is someone from within the faith community, the body 
of Christ. James anticipates the possibility of a follower of Jesus wandering or going astray. The word translated here as wandering or straying is the Greek word planau. Planau is where our English word for planet comes from, this word planau. In the ancient world, you see, of which James was a part, it was observed that certain stars seemingly appeared in different places and at different times in the night sky. Now, today, we know that these stars are our solar system's planets. But we also further understand that they travel in an elliptical orbit around the sun, just like the Earth. But you see, the ancients in James's day, lacking such knowledge and understanding, perceived those stars or planets to be wandering in the night sky. James is invoking this image through this word, planano, to visualize how a believer whose life is in proper orbit around the sun, the Son of God, who is reflecting the light of the sun, of the glory of Jesus Christ, how that person can wander or stray off course, or if you will, out of their proper orbit. What's implied here is a slow drift, a gradual falling out of alignment. It's not about a sudden jerk or shift in one's relationship with Christ. It's much more subtle and nuanced than that. And then really, if we stop and think about it, much of James's letter that we've been looking at has been his effort to describe and deal with all of the small, subtle, but significant ways we can wander or stray away from the way of Jesus. Acting out of impatience, misusing our tongues, becoming self-centered, indulging compulsions towards greed. These are all postures that we can begin to adopt that ultimately, James has warned us, will lead us astray from what he refers to in this passage as the truth. By the truth, James does not mean doctrinal defection as much as he does relational compromise. James repeatedly has been declaring to us what we profess to believe about Jesus must be embodied, practiced in how we live for Christ, how we live like Christ with each other. Therefore, the truth James is appealing to is more than knowing the word of God. It is far beyond a confession of faith, our intellectual or emotional assent to the gospel. You know, what James has in mind by the truth is a person, a relationship, a relationship with Jesus Christ, with the word of God made flesh. And living according to it, living in alignment with that truth, that relationship is following abiding, witnessing to, tangibly reflecting the way of Jesus, of Christ's love and forgiveness, his generosity and compassion, his sacrifice and service before and with others. If we take anything away from this sermon series, I hope and pray it is James's revelation and repeated understanding that we must not be professors without being possessors of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Professors versus possessors. What I mean is we can call ourselves Christians. We can know what the Bible says. We can profess to believe in the gospel and to have faith in Jesus. We can read Christian devotionals and books. We can listen to Christian music and watch Christian movies and television shows. We can even adorn our house with crosses, Bibles, and scriptural verses, all the kind of kitschy stuff you can get at Hobby Lobby. We can do all of that. We can spend our time even with other Christians. We can work and give and support Christian organizations, causes, and mission projects. We can do all of those things. But in the end, 
What we actually believe and whom we truly worship and follow will be evidenced not by that. It'll be judged not by those things, but how we practically and functionally lived. By what we said and what we did, how we exercised the resources we had been given by God, by where we dedicated our attention and our time, and by how we engaged and interacted with others, loving, forgiving, and serving not just the people we like or agree with, but especially the people who may be strangers to us, even enemies. That is what it means to live according to the truth. And one last time, James's emphasis on what we do versus what we say isn't some works-based righteousness. It's not about earning or meriting our favor with or our forgiveness from God. We are saved by grace alone, by nothing we can say or do, but only by what God has said, what the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ. But to be saved by grace alone is to live, to exist, to operate, to live by grace alone. It is not just to be rescued or resurrected. It is to be redeemed, to be reconciled again and again by grace alone, to be shaped and formed by the Spirit of God day to day to day in how we think, in how we speak, in how we act, so that in following Jesus, we become like Christ to each other. The implication in verse 20 is James cautioning us that those who wander from the way of Jesus make more than just a minor mistake, but actually a grave error, one that risks death. So verse 20 can kind of throw us a little bit. It can cause our eyes to widen and it begs the question, right? We're trying to track him with James and all of a sudden we have to ask based on verse 20, is James implying our deliverance by Christ is not secure and certain? that we can somehow lose our salvation? In the ultimate sense, meaning the promise of our final salvation to life beyond death, the answer to that question is no. We are eternally secure, thanks again to not to anything we do or don't do, we are eternally secure because of what Jesus has done for us. Our salvation, in other words, is not a nebulous mental state because of what we believe, it's not the result of our good behavior. We are saved by a permanent, world-transforming, life-changing event. On the cross, Jesus has covered and forgiven our sins through his death for us. Done. Through his resurrection, Jesus has conquered the power of sin, death, and the devil, and is carrying us from the end of existence as we know it, life as we know it, across the threshold to the possibility and assurance of everlasting life. My friends, this is an eternal shift, eternal shift, not a temporary or transitory state. And nothing we do or don't do changes what God has done for us. If we aren't saved by any act of righteousness, right? If we aren't saved by any act of righteousness, then we cannot lose what God gives to us, our salvation, by our sin. The permanence of our salvation is a corollary of the unconditional love of God. We are embraced by a God who in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit holds us with a promise and a determination to never let us go. And the strength of that love, the strength of that grace cannot be overcome by anyone who might want to snatch us away, including our own waywardness. But here's the thing. While we cannot lose our salvation, we can fail to fully exercise the salvation we have been given in Christ. 
instead of living out of and being transformed by the grace of God, we can choose to wander in the wilderness of our grumbling and disobedience. Instead of learning to abide in the full, abundant life that Jesus offers to us, we can choose to go astray in seeking to make a name for ourselves and building our lives on other foundations than Christ. Being forgiven, being saved by God in Christ, does not negate facing and learning from the consequences of our sin. The decisions we make, the actions we take, apart from the counsel of the Word and the Spirit. While our final destination is not in jeopardy, the trajectory and the experience of our journey to get there can be unnecessarily hard and even tragic along the way. Because God, our Father, is perfect in love, is love itself, God will, if we do wrong, rebuke and redirect us rather than eject us from His family. However, out of this same love for us, not to forsake but to redeem us, our infinite, all-powerful Father will humble, will discipline, will correct, and eliminate all that is wrong in us, all wrong that has been done by us. So when James speaks of error and even of death, this is what he is talking about. Not being cut off by God, but rather cutting ourselves off from God's grace. Not God condemning us to death, but choosing us choosing to remain in death, the death born of our sin, rather than to live out of the resurrection, the new life we have now in Christ. My friends, as works in progress, which we all are, no Christian is immune to potentially wandering from the way of Jesus. As sinners, gradually becoming saints, which we all are, we can easily become distracted by the temptation of quick fixes, no pain solutions, and the allure of blaming someone else for all our junk. We are often forgettable, forgetful of where we've been and how far the Lord has carried us this far. We are well-practiced and therefore struggle to learn something new. We struggle to learn that worrying and fear cannot add a single hour or day to our existence. We also struggle to learn that all our busyness and ceaseless activity doesn't prove we are alive. It only denies us the opportunity to discover the peace and joy of truly living. We're all prone to stray in thought and action from the way of Christ. And that wandering can manifest itself first in not being full physically present. It can come out, that wandering and drinking the Kool-Aid, that myth, and it is a myth that you can be a follower of Jesus without being a part of the church. My friends, if the church is not humanity's creation, our creation, but rather a work of the Spirit, if the church is not a building or even a congregation, but if the church is, according to the Bible, the body of Christ, then ask yourself, how can one follow Jesus if one is not a part of the body, part of of the community of faith. But make no mistake, wandering can also manifest itself even when we're not physically AWOL. We can wander, we can be present, and yet still not really be there. We can be wandering or astray in that we're remote, relationally distant or fenced off. You know what I'm talking about? We're present, but we don't sing. We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles. We don't interact with others. We show up when we feel like it, and then we exit out the side door. We don't introduce ourselves. We don't want to be known. We don't want to be contacted. We don't get involved. We prefer to observe, 
to watch from the back. That's one of the liabilities of this medium of how we're worshiping now is that you can be alone. Sometimes this is how we enter into our relationship with Jesus from the start, passively, and we just remain spectators rather than as participants. Sometimes we wander to the back of the room. We become, we move from being participants to spectators because we got hurt or wounded somewhere along the way, maybe even by those within the church. And I'm sorry if that's your story. But when that happens, or whether we've always just been that way, it just seems safer to keep our distance, to stay aloof. As spectators, rather than as participants, we convince ourselves the life Jesus offers to us, that grace, that love, that forgiveness, that generosity of Christ I was just talking about, it'll just rub off on us and take root and sprout in us by osmosis. (laughs) But that's not the way of Jesus, my friends. That's not the way of Christ. Jesus is a mover and a shaker. Jesus is a mover and a shaker. Jesus shows up in our lives and says, come, come and see, follow me, go and tell others what I've done in your life. Do even greater things than I've done. Works of healing and restoration, of inclusion and integration, of compassion and advocacy. Jesus is a shaker and a mover and following Jesus means we got to shake and we got to move. Jesus is clear. What he wants to teach us, what he purposes to do in and through us will not happen as long as we are just spectators. It will only happen as we participate in the work of his kingdom by being a part of his church. Now, I know some have argued church. Going to church, some have argued going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. You ever heard that one? It's true. It's a true statement. But we avoid wandering from Jesus, not by going to church. We avoid wandering from Jesus by together being the church, by encouraging and supporting each other as we seek not alone, but together to worship and serve the Lord to yield and abide our lives to Jesus, to learn and to grow according to the Word and the Spirit, to witness to Christ through our love and care, not simply for each other, but to the neighborhood that surrounds us, to the world that we're a part of. This is how we grow. And living like that doesn't happen when we're alone, when we're spectators. On our own, we get distracted. We get preoccupied with other stuff without the accountability, the empowerment of community, we end up having a lot of great intentions, but very little consistent practice and maturity in the faith. Practicing our faith, beloved, is never meant to be alone, isolated. We wander, we go astray from the way of Jesus when we cut ourselves off from the body of Christ, whether by being physically absent or relationally unengaged. All of this brings us to the final bow James puts on his letter. Keeping in mind that all followers of Jesus can wander and go astray, as we've just talked about, James charges us with the responsibility of looking out for one another. James ends by assuring we understand that it is not enough that we follow Jesus as individuals that we attempt somehow to indulge in a transactional, privatized faith. God calls us together into the community of Christ because we are intended, we need, to walk by faith together. Notice James's caution here isn't for us to first and only watch out for ourselves. James doesn't tell us to watch out for ourselves. 
He tells us to pay attention and assure that our brothers and sisters are still with us and as needed to be willing to pursue and bring back anyone who wanders off or goes astray from Christ. While we do indeed have a good shepherd who goes before us, we must stick together and look out for each other as the sheep. In other words, part of our calling as followers of Jesus is search and rescue. We need to search, meaning we need to remain attentive and to recognize when someone has wandered off. Someone who is noticeably missing, who's usually present, again, physically or relationally. We need to search, meaning we need to really listen, to have our spiritual radar up and to notice when another Christian's behavior seems out of character, when his or her habits and patterns of decisions begin to negatively change, when another believer is drifting away from looking to and following Jesus. First, we need to search, but then we need to rescue. We need to do more than just search, and we need to initiate a rescue attempt for those who get lost, because those who drift away are often unaware they've wandered off, because a straying person cannot find their way back on their own. To be clear, any rescue effort we undertake doesn't ultimately depend on us. Let's be clear about that. In the end, it is God alone who saves, who corrects and restores anyone. But the instigation of that rescue is required by us. Why? It's required by each of us because Christ intervenes and works through those who follow him. The community of faith, his body, the church. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Search and rescue work isn't easy. It can be unwanted, rebuked even. If somebody doesn't want to be found, it can be a demanding task to try and locate them. And there's always the risk that in trying to reach someone who has wandered off or gone astray, that they'll bite you. They'll strike back even as you try to help them in their woundedness. Search and rescue can appear to be a thankless job. And it's for that reason that most of us tend to avoid it, don't we? We tend to avoid it, don't we? We notice a brother or sister who's missing, who's missing. They're not present. We've, we talk about their absence out loud, but we don't pursue them. We don't pursue them because we tell ourselves, well, it's none of our business. Really? We watch as a brother or sister starts talking and acting differently, not being like themselves, dimming or even snuffing the light of Christ within. But we don't say anything. We don't say anything convincing ourselves, well, that's between them and the Lord. Really? I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine for a moment that you started on a hike in the woods with a bunch of people. Picture that. And now imagine that you eventually turned around and realized you were lost. Picture being alone in the dark, totally disoriented, tired, hungry, thirsty. And imagine if no one came looking for you. When you finally managed to get back to the rest of the group, wouldn't you wonder why no one came? Wouldn't you wonder how it could be that no one seemed to notice that you were missing? Now imagine in the midst of those thoughts that someone from the group says, oh, 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 I'm, oh, we realized you were gone, 
but we wanted to be sensitive to your feelings. We really didn't think it was any of our business. You know, we thought you might be embarrassed if we came looking for you. <laughs> really? Imagine someone else adds to that and says, oh yeah, you know, it did seem a little odd to us that you went off by yourself like that, but we figured you had your reasons and we didn't want to be judgmental of your choice to do that. Really? Imagine someone further adds, oh, oh, of course we knew it was dark and cold and a bit stormy out there for you by yourself. So even though we didn't actually come looking for you, we were praying for you to be okay the whole time. We were praying for you to be okay the whole time. How many of us would want to hike with this group of people again? How many of us would entrust our well-being to a company like this? My friends, to see a brother or sister wandering off in a dangerous direction, to discover that a beloved child of God has gone missing, and to do nothing about it is a tragic dereliction of our duty as followers of Jesus. We've developed within the community of the church, I don't know how, but we've developed within the community of the church a practice from our broader culture, this idea within the church of privatized religion. This idea that what you believe is what you believe. That your relationship with God is your relationship with God and not necessarily mine. But with his last breath, James is here to tell us there ain't no such thing as private religion. There ain't no such thing. There ain't no such thing as my personal, independent relationship with Jesus and yours. Biblically, that doesn't exist. James's closing words here hearken all the way back to when Cain defiantly asked God about Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you remember that story? The answer then, am I my brother's keeper? The answer then, the answer here in James, and the answer still today is yes. Yes, you are. Yes, yes, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. You and I, we are together as the body of Christ, responsible not only for our own faith, not only for our own fight with sin, not only for our own perseverance in the faith, but we are also responsible and accountable for our neighbor's faith, for our brother and sister's fight with sin, for our brother and sister's perseverance in Christ. The love of Jesus compels us to the ministry of searching and rescuing each other. James here isn't calling us to sit in judgment over one another in the name of getting someone right with God. That's not what this is about. James isn't telling us to publicly guilt and shame each other back to Jesus. That's not what James is invoking here. James is urging us to carefully and wisely discern the health of the body and each member of it and to be willing to go and look for and not leave behind those who wander off or get lost. James is imploring us to care enough to never give up and to humbly confront even as we radically accept and patiently encourage a brother or sister who has strayed or gotten off track from the way of Jesus. You know, we witness an example of this kind of search and rescue operation that James is commending us to in the life of Peter. Peter, who wandered and went astray from Christ, not once, but twice. First, when Peter denied Christ three times, and the second time, when Peter segregated himself from the Gentile believers in order to avoid trouble with the Jewish Christians. And in both cases, biblically, we see Peter was directly and lovingly corrected, but not condemned, and graciously restored back into the fullness of his relationship with Jesus, as well as fellowship with others. James himself is a byproduct of search and rescue thanks to Jesus. Did you know that? You have to remember, James was not an early adopter 
in terms of coming to believe and follow his half-brother Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. During Jesus' earthly ministry, James was among his family accusing his older brother of being out of his mind. James did not come to believe and follow Jesus until after Christ's resurrection. Look, James doesn't appear to have been at the cross as Jesus hung there and died. He's curiously absent because the care of their mother Mary is given at the cross to the apostle John, not to a member of Jesus' biological family. James was a late bloomer, a post-resurrection believer, and yet clearly Jesus did not give up on him, but instead relentlessly embodied, as Jesus does for all of us, humble patience and tireless love in turning James back to him. As we come to the end of James's letter, his closing words should remain with us incisive and enduring in their call for us to be more than professors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but possessors, sharers of the heart and the way of Jesus, to follow Christ through our work as intercessors and not accusers, searching and rescuing, loving and caring for each other. I'm convinced as we listen to this word today from James that the Spirit has put upon us, that there is at least one person that the Spirit has put upon our hearts who we suspect or know has wandered or gone astray, someone who has lost sight of Christ. Are you thinking of that person right now? Someone who is heading in a direction, down a path that will not bring them closer to Jesus, but instead take them farther from the light of his love, grace, and truth. Do you have the picture of that person in your mind and in your heart? The question is, how is the Lord calling you, you, to seek that person out? How is the Holy Spirit directing and empowering you? Yes, you to reach out and make contact, to intervene and point the way back to Jesus. My friends, don't let this word from James fall on deaf ears. Let us together, each one of us, all of us, by the grace of God, through the wisdom of his word and the inspiration of his spirit, help each other in keeping the pace as we follow Jesus together, spurring each other on in moving forward, carrying each other when we struggle lifting each other up when we stumble and not leaving anyone behind. Not leaving anyone behind, but instead coming back when someone has gotten lost or just stopped moving. And let us rejoice together. Let us rejoice together in the knowledge that when we answer that divine call to search and rescue for each other, we are not only participating, but we are extending for all the world to see God's salvation at work. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.